From the theologically conservative Christianity of my childhood, I learned to read the Bible literally as a record of what had actually happened in history. And although I would occasionally question details that, does that really make sense? I was also influenced by the significant numbers of people around me who seemed to unquestioningly accept that the Bible was fact. Only later did I come to see that likely many people, or at least quite a few in my childhood congregation, probably actually did have questions but didn't feel comfortable voicing them aloud. I was also taught to read the Hebrew Bible as the Christian Old Testament instead of studying the original context of these books within the Jewish tradition. I was taught that they were valuable primarily for the ways that they were understood to have predicted details about Jesus' life. As a child, placing Jesus at the center of life, the universe, and everything didn't actually seem that strange. After all, the calendar in widespread use in Western civilization literally counted the years since Jesus' birth. It seemed like something had changed with life, the universe, and everything, if that's what we were using to date our calendars and our history. But as I grew up, I increasingly began to encounter other perspectives, and I was increasingly struck by the different ways that Christians and Jews would look at the same sentences and read them quite differently. As the Yale literary critic Carol Bloom said regarding the ways that he views Christian use of Jewish scriptures, he says, it's like Christianity stole our watch and for the last 2,000 years has been trying to tell us what time it is. Today, the Western calendar may tell us that the year is 2017 A.D., A.D. meaning Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, um, counting from, in reference to Jesus, although it's not everyone's Lord that has that as their calendar. But some of you, in contrast, will recall the challenge from the evolutionary evangelist Michael Dowd, who spoke here a few years ago. He said in reference to our Western dating system, we perhaps would benefit from, instead of having B.C. mean before Christ, Maybe we should have B.C. mean before Copernicus. The astronomer whose 1543 book on the revolution of the heavenly spheres presented scientific evidence that the earth and we humans and our history is not at the center of life, the universe, and everything. We began to some experience some decentering that the earth is actually at the center, at least of our solar system. But over time, in the 500 years since Copernicus, we've come to see that the decenterings that we face as a species are far more profound and, un and unnerving than heliocentrism alone. After Darwin, we know that we humans are not a little, um, little lower than the angels, we're just a little higher than the apes. After Einstein, we know that space and time are not stable either. They are relative to one another. Science tells us that rather than Jesus being at the center of history, we humans are an infinitesimal part of a much larger universe story that has been unfolding so far across 13.8 billion years and across more than 2 trillion galaxies, not billion, trillion so if Jesus is not at the center of history, then what does historical scholarship tell us about the quest for the historical Jesus and how we might best understand these texts that, became, that came to be collected as the Bible within their original context? 
One of the turning points in my own understanding came from reading uh, the historical Jesus scholar John Dominic Crossan's book, Who Killed Jesus, which asks if the passion narrative, so the, the passion narratives are the stories about Jesus' death. It comes from the Latin word passio, meaning suffering. So think about the word compassion, right? Com passio, to suffer with is compassion. So passio, the passion narratives are about Jesus' suffering. They're the stories about that. So he said, are these passion narratives history remembered or are they prophecy historicized? And I'll, I'll tell you what he means by that. As a child, I was only taught the perspective of history remembered, that the Christian scriptures were accurate historical records passed down generation to generation. And part of the alleged proof that was often cited is that hundreds of years, it must be true because hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, the Hebrew prophets claimed and predicted with uh, shocking accuracy, we are told, uh, these details around Jesus' death. In contrast, the perspective of prophecy historicized invites us to consider that perhaps we have that direction of influence precisely backward. That instead of the prophets predicting the future, Christian authors, decades after Jesus' death, reached back and try out of their trauma in trying to understand Jesus' death, they reached back into the stories and the themes and the typologies of the Hebrew Bible to draft the Christian Gospels. So that passages in the Hebrew Bible that were originally about their own time and place, hundreds of years before Jesus, later became seen as proof of predicting details about Jesus' death. The prophecy became historicized. Now, I went into uh, quite a bit of detail in a sermon a few years ago about how Jews and Christians read the Bible differently, and we used as a case study Isaiah chapter 7. So we looked at the ways in which that story in its original context was told about, uh, that's the passage in the Messiah where um, King of Kings and Lord of Lords and a wonderful counselor, our mighty God, the everlasting Savior, that that was all later seen as about Jesus when in its own time it was seen about a crown prince in Isaiah's own day in the 800 years before Jesus. And so we looked also at the ways that passage in Hebrew uses the word Alma, meaning young woman. um, And because Alexander the Great conquered the world 300 years before Jesus, we got people translating the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And what's called the Septuagint. And in that, when you, Alma was translated into Greek, they used the word not Alma, but um, Parthenos, which means virgin. So those of you who are biologists, think about parthenogenesis. It's the same word of, of um, reproduction without, uh, by oneself, without a partner. So it's, uh, we get these changes that happen over time that make things seem very different in retrospect. But let me give you a few other examples. Um, I was specifically about the passion narratives. I was raised to read Jesus' final words from the cross in Mark 15, 34, as if a journalist had been there taking notes for posterity. So we get, at 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a, in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamba sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, as I began a more academic investigation into the Bible, it was pointed out to me, you know... Those exact same words that that Mark puts into the mouth of Jesus at at his death, that's actually the beginning of Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 begins, I'll read just the first two verses. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, um... Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. And some of you have studied and compared the 
the stories of Jesus' death will recall the Gospels actually have quite different last words of Jesus. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of dereliction is quite different than the Gospel of Luke in which we get into your, a, much, a peaceful into your hands, I commend my spirit, versus the very confident Jesus of the Gospel of John where he says, it is finished, because you know, the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the most divine of all four. A history of remembered view would argue, oh, well, I guess Jesus was just quoting the psalm, right? He's in distress, and he reaches back for these words from his childhood. That's possible. But a prophecy historicized view would invite us to consider that tragically, in all likelihood, no one knows what Jesus' last words were, which is one reason we see them as quite different in the different gospel traditions. That Jesus' followers would have scattered after his arrest, and they likely would not have been present at his death. So we, and let me give you a few more examples. Another exact parallel from the crucifixion jumps out one chapter later from Psalm chapter 22, uh, verse 18. We read, quote, they divide my clothes amongst themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, was that an early prediction of what later came to be the case with Jesus as history remembered? Or were those details from the psalm woven into the reconstruction about Jesus' death as these um, Jewish scholars sought to tell the story in conversation with the tradition they had inherited. Maintaining a history-remembered perspective becomes increasingly difficult as one studies example after example from the Hebrew Bible of exact words, phrases, and sequences that seem to have been imported into how the Passion narratives were told. Even many theologically orthodox biblical scholars who have studied all this very closely and considered all the evidence, they'll actually admit, yeah, maybe about 20% of the Gospels were prophecy historicized, while maintaining, but we still think about 80% of it was history remembered. But more progressive scholars like Crossan go much further and would invite us to consider that about 80% of the Passion narratives are prophecy historicized and maybe about 20% is history remembered. That percentage is right there in line with the the Jesus Seminar's famous pronouncement about 20 years ago that only about 20% of the words attributed to Jesus in the Gospels were actually said by him. And in some ways, these statistics are not that surprising. The Gospels are almost entirely written in the third person, right? They're not, Jesus and I were walking along, and he went up a hill, and he gave this, and I listened to him give the Sermon on the Mount. They're all written in third person. He did this, he did that, as it was. Uh, they don't claim to be eyewitness um, testimonies, and were written, uh, the earliest of which, four decades after the death of Jesus. So think about something that happened in 1930 being written about in 1970, if that gives you a, um, a little perspective on it. To give you another example, looking again at Mark, the earliest of the four canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark 15.33, seen in isolation from a history-remembered perspective, can seem like a straightforward recording of events. Quote, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until it was three in the afternoon. But a perspective of prophecy historicized invites us to consider the ways that Amos 8, 9 through 10, may have been used in reconstructing that story. We read, On that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And we see one more crucial piece. It says, I will make it like the morning, the sadness, not M-O-R-M-O-U-R. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. So we can see why they may have picked that chapter of Amos for the details used to um, write about the crucifixion. 
Or to consider the way the story of Judas betraying Jesus during the Last Supper may have been inspired by Psalm 41, verse 9. Quote, even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Or regarding the words allegedly spoken from heaven at Jesus' baptism. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Are these examples of history remembered or of prophecy that became historicized? As you start to closely compare the passion narratives with the Hebrew Bible, the case becomes strong that all those um, um, pieces about spitting and nudging come from the scapegoat ritual in the Hebrew Bible that mentions about scourging and buffeting and spitting come from Isaiah 50, verse 6 of the servant songs. Mentions of piercing, seeing, and mourning come from Zechariah 12.10. Any mentions of disrobing and re-robing and crowning come from Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Crossan lays these and others out in a way that you can compare the text closely. His book, Who Killed Jesus, is actually quite accessible if you want to explore more for yourself. But to give you a thumbnail sketch of how did these canonical gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come to be, keep in mind that Jesus, as um, Bob mentioned earlier, um, was crucified around the year 30. We don't actually even, you see like 27 to 30, we're not, we, we think he died at Passover, we're pretty sure about that, but we don't know the year. It's hard to overemphasize that Jesus was a Jewish peasant. We just did, he, his death did not appear on the equivalent of the New York Times the next day, right? So I mean, we really just don't know. Uh, so Jesus, the crucifixion is around 30. The first of the Gospels is written around 70. Matthew and Luke are written around 80. John is written around 90. If instead of reading those four canonical Gospels sequentially, as many people grew up doing, you read Matthew and then you read Luke and then, I mean, Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John, if instead of reading them in sequence, you begin reading them comparatively. You can buy these books called Gospel Parallels that actually set them up in parallel columns so you can compare and contrast the differences. You begin to notice things like 80% of the Gospel of Mark is reproduced in Matthew and 60% is reproduced in Luke. And Luke tends to maintain Mark's order, whereas Matthew doesn't. Um, and that Matthew and Luke correct, Mark has the worst Greek, uh, and that Matthew and Luke correct his Greek in ways that are very consistent to their respective idiosyncratic editorial styles. You also start to notice that 90% of John is unique to John. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they see together. So think like sin, like synthesis, S-Y-N, optic, like your optician. So synoptic, they see together, and John sees things very differently. That 10% that John does share with the synoptic gospels is mostly the passion narratives, the story of Jesus' death. So as best scholars can reconstruct, Mark, the earliest gospel, and John, who was sort of doing his own thing, they both independently inherited an independently earlier circulating passion narrative. So a story about Jesus' death that was written and constructed. Mark got a copy and John had a copy, and they had it on their respective desks when they were writing. Matthew and Luke, coming about a decade after Mark, in turn had on their desk a copy of Mark, and they didn't have the passion thing, but they had Mark, who had already incorporated it, as well as Q. So some of you may have heard of that, that weird Q gospel. That's a hypothetical gospel that is hypothesized because there are 200 verses that Matthew and Luke share that are not in Mark. 
And the people used to say, the, the biggest criticism of that, we don't have a copy of Q, but people used to say, oh, Christians didn't do what Q is, because what Q is would be saying of Jesus, saying of Jesus, saying of Jesus. No resurrection, no birth stories, no miracles, just wisdom sayings of Jesus. Then in 1945, we dug up the Gospel of Thomas in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And Thomas is not Q, but Thomas is the genre of Q. Saying of Jesus, saying of Jesus, saying of Jesus, no miracles, no resurrection, no birth story. Another pattern you'll notice if you read the Gospels, not in the order they appear canonically, but in the way they're written chronologically, so read Mark and then read Matthew and Luke and then read John, is that the later the Gospel was written chronologically, the earlier Jesus is declared to be divine. So it's sort of going the opposite way and the more divine he's declared to be. So in Romans, written three decades after the historical Jesus by Paul, Jesus is exalted at his resurrection. A decade later in time, Mark is written, but instead of the resurrection, it's the birth, uh, the virgin birth that Jesus has declared to be divine. Then we go a decade later to Matthew and Luke, and it's, sorry, baptism in Mark, then birth in Matthew and Luke, because Mark starts with the baptism, and then John, it's the latest, but the earliest, and the most uh, divine Jesus is declared to be. Because in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So uh, there's a similar but more... So keep that pattern in mind, and also notice that there is a similar but more pernicious trajectory that inspired Crossan's book that has that question, who killed Jesus? Because over the centuries, the accusations have grown increasingly loud that the Jews killed Jesus. Indeed, people seem to forget until about a few decades ago when people started emphasizing the opposite that Jesus was Jewish, let's all remember, right? However, even if there was some likelihood of Jewish collaboration with the Romans, it was ultimately the Romans who killed Jesus for disturbing the peace, and the inciting incident was Jesus' nonviolent action at the temple precisely during Passover, when the Romans would have had the least tolerance for disturbing the peace because all the pilgrims were in town. So when the crowds are high, tolerance for dissent is low. Ultimately, Jews did not crucify people. Romans did. But as we progress chronologically, both the Gospels and the Christian tradition generally become increasingly pro-Roman and anti-Jewish. In Mark, it is the Jewish authorities which are bad and the Jewish crowd that is bad. By the time we get to Matthew and Luke, the Jewish authorities are bad and the Jewish people as a whole at that time are bad. When we get to John, the Jews are bad, without caveat, without qualification. Pilate, in some streams of the Christian tradition, has even been canonized as a saint. The truth is that there would have been a standing order of any Roman official, such as Pilate, to crucify a peasant um, who was causing disruption at Passover. Without This wouldn't have been a big deal without trial. I mean, the biggest thing that a lot of historical Jesus scholars say that we get wrong is we look just at the crucifixion of Jesus instead of zooming out and seeing all of the thousands of crucifixions that were happening at that time. And so all those increasingly complex Christian narratives about Pontius Pilate and his wife, out, out, damn spot, like in Shakespeare, wringing their hands, should we crucify this Jewish peasant? I'm just worried that we're going to get it wrong. That would not have happened um, historically. Um, So this duress about having to crucify a Jewish peasant, that is not history, that is propaganda. As Christians sought increasingly to distinguish themselves as independent from Judaism and as acceptable within the Roman Empire. 
At first, when early Jesus followers were marginal, this pro-Roman, anti-Jewish trend was benign. But by the 4th century, when the Roman Empire became Christian, these seeds of anti-Judaism grew into the virulent anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages, of the Inquisition, of the Holocaust, and continue to, to bloom in some disturbing ways today. Here in the early 21st century, there remains much spiritual and ethical wisdom um, from the historical Jesus and from the Christian tradition. But we are, no, we are long past the point where one can responsibly claim that the gospel should be read as literal history remembered. We must be honest about the original context and all we have learned about how prophecy became historicized. The um, uh, one, another historical Jesus scholar, A.J. Levine, Amy Jill Levine, uh, teaches at Vanderbilt Divinity School. She's a Jewish New Testament scholar. Um, Pamela Eisenbaum is a similar Jewish New Testament scholar teaching at Isle of School of Theology. It's really interesting to read these Jewish perspectives on the Christian tradition. Uh, Levine describes herself as a Yankee Jewish feminist teaching the New Testament in the buckle of the Bible belt uh, down at Vanderbilt. And she used to, she still does a version of this, but um, she was famous for years of bringing her young son into the classroom when when she would teach about the passion narratives. And she would pick him up and put him on the desk, and she would look in the eyes of all of these students and say, all of you who will grow up to preach the Christian Gospels, do not ever preach Christianity in a way that will get my son beat up. Because that's what used to happen, that on the, when we had the Good Friday liturgy, a lot of this got reformed with Vatican II, but there, there used to be in the liturgy the prayer for the perfidious Jews. Some of you may have grown up praying that, and so people would pray, meaning um, faithlessness, perfidy, so that people would pray for the perfidious Jews, and then they would go out and look for a Jew to beat up. I mean, that's, that's what happened for years out of the Christian tradition. So to give you a brief summary of this sort of sequence of what we're talking about, the first stage was, of course, the historical passion, the historical suffering, what actually happened. But here's what Crossan invites us to consider. It turns out that those who knew all the details of what happened to Jesus, those who knew didn't care because they were the Roman authorities, and those that cared, as far as we can tell, just didn't know because they had scattered in fear. So the actual historical facts come to us today as little more than the barest minimum, that there was crucifixion, that there was a Jesus movement, there was an execution, and there was a continuation of that movement despite that trauma and despite that execution. The second stage is the prophetic passion. It's the work of learned followers of Jesus. But the earliest followers of Jesus, for the most part, were illiterate peasants. So this second stage comes in the next generation as literate scholars begin to search their scripture, which for them was the Torah and the prophets, the first two-thirds of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible is still in flux and not fully canonized. They search their scripture seeking to understand what had happened to Jesus and what had happened to themselves. So would they find in their sacred writings texts and themes and types that would help them explain this trauma? The third stage is the narrative passion, which took that esoteric scholarly exegesis and recast it as a narrative, as a story, which circulated independently till it was picked up by Mark and picked up by John separately and woven into their respective gospels. The fourth stage is what might be called the polemical passion, which claimed that that third stage of narrative was synonymous with the first stage of what had actually happened. 
That cruel twist turned Jesus' mystical and prophetic reform from within the Jewish tradition into eventually, a few centuries later, a state religion that was anti-Jewish and pro-empire. So in light of what we know about prophecy historicized, we can see the absurdity of claiming the Old Testament as definitive proof that the Gospels are obviously history-remembered. Because, of course, the narrative passion in that third stage agrees with the details of the, of the historical passion in the first stage. The third stage had been quarried from the contents of the first stage. So, of course, it came to agree. So this Easter Sunday, more than 2,000 years later, where can we find hope? Where can we find transformation in the passion narratives? In many ways, our invitation is parallel to that found by the second and third generation of Jesus followers. They searched what to them were their scriptures to better understand their situation and to create meaning in ways that might help build a better life and a better world. Too often, however, later generations have abdicated their responsibility and have unquestioningly perpetuated what created meaning and community for one generation, one subset of people, two millennia ago, instead of searching for meaning in their own, creating, doing again what was done previously. So that in search of hope and transformation, the challenge for us, as it is for each new generation, is to do what our path-baking creative ancestors did, but in our own time and place. To draw from the sources of wisdom available to us, including but not limited to the Christian and Jewish traditions. To draw wisdom from all the world's religions balanced with the insights of modern science in our own free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I invite you to carry that discernment into our singing of the next hymn, to really notice the words of this next um, song. Uh, if you'll uh, turn to hymn 276, O Young and Fearless Prophet, notice as we sing what words and phrases particularly stand out to you. What wisdom from our UU fourth source of the Jewish and Christian tradition particularly resonates with you for our time today? Let's sing. Please rise. Thank you. 